Last uh, Monday through Wednesday, 12 of us from Heather Hills went down to Nashville, Tennessee for what's called the Sing Conference put on by our friends at uh, Getty Music. Uh, It was a great conference, uh, lots of new music, uh, opportunities to resource and network, uh, listen to good preaching and singing, be refreshed in our spirits. And at the very beginning of the conference, Keith Getty had the whole group, there were 8,500 of us in the arena, um, and then there were, I, I read, about 80,000 people online that were also watching the conference. He had all of us stand together, and uh, at the beginning, we sang the old hymn, All People That on Earth Do Dwell, uh, the old Psalter setting of Psalm 100. And this was accompanied by a several hundred voice choir, a big brass section and timpani, and a pipe organ. A very loud pipe organ. There were five verses, and each verse got a little louder. Then on the last verse, the volume peaked, the organ bellowed with all of its might, and we slowed the song down to really focus on the words we were singing with a long amen at the end of the psalm to close it out. Then I came home to study Micah 7, 8 through 20. And I discovered something pretty interesting. This last stretch of Micah's prophecy is actually considered a liturgical hymn, something that would have been sung in Israel. It's a hymn with four stanzas or verses. The first three are meant to be set apart and leading us with increasing intensity to the final stanza and the conclusion of the whole prophecy. So we'll learn a new hymn this morning, inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded in the pages of Scripture. I don't have music for it, and I don't know that anyone set it to music, but I hope that this hymn will encourage you and teach you just as any good hymn should. The other interesting thing about this last section of Micah is that the meaning of Micah's name comes up again. You may remember at the very beginning of this study, five weeks ago, we learned what Micah's name meant. It means, who is like the Lord? And today, he's going to answer that question definitively in this special song. So the title of the sermon today is, Who is a God like you? Let's look at stanza number one. He shines light into his people. Verses 8 through 10. You know, a few years ago, my wife and I were traveling in Texas. We decided to visit some caverns uh, deep in the ground underneath Austin. And the caverns went down nearly 70 feet underground. uh, And they were fascinating to look at as we moved from, from space to space. They had it all lit up with beautiful lights, and it was beautiful. But as tour guides in caves often do... When we were at our deepest point in the largest cavern, they have a standstill and turn all the lights off. And if you've ever been in such darkness, you can't see 
anything, even your hand right in front of your eyes. A thick darkness. They let it linger for a few seconds, and then the colorful lighting came back on, thankfully, and we continued the tour. Micah lets us know that God is like the light that pours into the darkness. Micah is addressing here the enemy of Israel. You noticed that at the beginning of verse 8, didn't you? Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. The enemy at this point in time, as we know, was Assyria. The, 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 the leader's name was Sennacherib, and his army had surrounded Jerusalem. He had conquered all of the northern kingdom of Israel. He had conquered 30 cities, fortified cities in Judah in the southern kingdom, and now he had his sights set on Jerusalem. They had surrounded the city. They were preparing to do siege. Micah uh, confesses to, 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 to the Lord, but, but, but this army that's there, they're, they're taunting him. They're they're, 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 and this is recorded in several, several places in the, in the Old Testament, Isaiah and, other, and, and Kings and other places, where they're, they're mocking the Lord, of, of the Lord their God, the, Lord, the God of Israel. And um, in fact, even here in verse 10, uh, it says that the enemy had said, where is the Lord your God? And Micah confesses here in these opening verses that the darkness that he and his people are in are a result of their sin. Do you notice that in verse, um, verse 9? I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. The reason they're in such darkness is because of their, their great sin over long periods of time. But amazingly, as we learn about who God is in this text today, God will take up their cause. And he will vindicate them. The rest of verse 9 says, He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will vindicate Israel. He will put the enemy to shame. Do you see that in verse 10? Shame will cover the enemy. And as we've already seen, that's exactly what happens in history. As King Hezekiah in Jerusalem calls out to God for mercy, and the angel of the Lord comes down in the middle of the night and slays 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in this army that has surrounded Jerusalem. And the next morning, there's dead bodies everywhere. And Sennacherib packs up what little army he has left and heads back to Nineveh. And in fact, dies within a day or two of, of going back to Nineveh. In fact, Micah says in verse 10, the enemies here will be trampled. You see the end of the verse there? They will be trampled down like mud. Do you remember the promise of Genesis 3.15, which has come up before? The seed of the woman, the godly line, will have its heel bruised by the seed of the serpent, the snake, the wicked line. And, and, and the serpent and the seed of the snake will be crushed. Their head will be crushed under that foot, which is bruised. And so whenever we see the crushing of heads, whenever we see the, the trampling under the feet in Scripture, it's usually, usually designating someone as an enemy of God. 
One, one contemporary example of this in Micah's day would have been in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 30 to 37, where he had the evil queen Jezebel. Remember that name, right? Who doesn't? Everybody remembers Jezebel. Jezebel, at the end of her day, was thrown down. Do you remember? She was thrown down out of a window, and she was trampled on by the horses of Jehu's chariots. She was seed of the serpent. This is the fate of the Lord's enemies, and it will be the fate of this enemy as well. So the first verse of our hymn tells us how the Lord brings light into the darkness, how the Lord puts his enemies to shame. That's what our God is like, and it's worth worshiping about. Second stanza, verses 11 to 13 What is God like? He rebuilds and expands the city. Now, this last Friday, uh, on my day off, I was was watching some documentaries, and I noticed that there were a number of 9-11 videos and documentaries that were being featured on television this weekend as we come to the 22nd anniversary of that horrific day tomorrow on Patriot Day. And I watched an interview of then-President Bush... And I was surprised how raw my emotions became 22 years ago, and the emotions were still right there as I remembered the details of that day that I had forgotten. But the hope that kept America going through those very difficult days was twofold, and the president expressed it in that interview. One, we would find and destroy our enemy who had attacked us. That was motivating. That's what got a lot of young men into the service, to go and get that enemy. The second thing that kept us going and gave us hope as a nation is that we would clean up where we had been attacked and rebuild. And we did. When you think about the prophecy that Micah was making, realize that nothing had happened yet in Jerusalem. Yes, they were in danger. Yes, they were surrounded by an army, a large army. But the city had not been attacked yet. It was fine. Actually, Jerusalem wouldn't be conquered because of Hezekiah's prayer, because of the angel of the Lord that would come down and rescue them. Jerusalem would actually not be conquered for another hundred plus years until Nebuchadnezzar finally comes and conquers Jerusalem. In 586 B.C. But notice according to verse 11 here, the walls are going to need to be rebuilt. Micah's anticipating a day when those walls are destroyed, when they're knocked down. You know, it'd be natural to assume here that Micah is talking about a day in the future when there's a return from exile and like uh, as we read in the Old Testament when uh, Nehemiah and others come back to the land and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. And it would be natural to assume that Micah's talking about that rebuilding. But God seems to have something bigger in mind as we read on in the text. He's not simply speaking of a rebuilding. He's talking about an expanding. Do you see that in the text? In verse 11, In that day the boundary shall be far extended in that day 
Those who fill the city will come from all over the world, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. Micah also uses that phrase, in that day. In fact, he uses it a couple of times there. Which is kind of like, if you know anything about biblical prophecy, you know that whenever you read about on that day, or in that day, or that day, or the day of the Lord, whenever you read that language, it's kind of like biblical code for the last days. And so I would interpret these verses here, not just in light of the children of Israel coming home from Babylon, coming home from Nineveh and rebuilding the walls and the temple and their city, but more from the perspective of Micah chapter 4. Do you remember Micah chapter 4? When Jerusalem is going to be on the highest of all the mountains and all the nations one day are going to be streaming up to that mountain. The great Zion in the future kingdom. I think that's what Micah is referring to here. He's also referencing the judgment of God again here in verse 13. Do you notice how, how each verse is intensifying a little bit? Back in verse 10, it was the Assyrian army who was targeted to be trampled on. But now in verse 13, it says the whole earth will be desolate, a wasteland. Each stanza of this hymn is building. Let's look at the third. Who is this God, Micah? He's a God who shepherds and protects his people. Verses 14 to 17. This third stanza of this hymn is beautiful. It reminds us of the way that the Lord leads and cares for his own. We've seen this shepherd king theme before in Micah, haven't we? We saw it in chapter 2, 12 and 13. Saw it in chapter 4, chapter 5. And here, Micah calls on the Lord to shepherd his people into the new promised land. In verse 14, the word staff is there. The shepherd's staff. It, it reminds us of places like Psalm 23, 4, where the Lord, as our shepherd, takes his rod and his staff and he comforts us with them. Bashan and Gilead, those two references here, were, were very fertile grasslands in the promised land. You can see where they were located there on the map to the, to the east side of the Jordan River, the, where all that green, lush area is where Israel first settled their farmland before coming into the promised land. And I don't know, Greg, I don't know if you knew I was going to go to Exodus 15 or not. Did you know that? Okay, isn't that funny how the Lord does things? Greg referenced Exodus 15 in his call to worship this morning. And Exodus 15 is all over this passage today. In fact, I don't know if you can read this chart or not, but I just wanted to show you that there are a number of references here to the song of the sea that, that Greg uh, read about in his call to worship this morning. You remember in Exodus 15, what had happened is the children of Israel had just crossed the Red Sea miraculously you know the the sea split in two they go through three million of them go through in one night on dry land and pharaoh and his armies try to follow and the 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 water comes crashing down on them and they all drown 
And there are specific terms and phrases that are used all throughout Exodus 15 that are right here in Micah 7 too. And all of these terms together show us that Micah wants us to remember what happened in God's providence back in Exodus. The word tremble, the word quake, the idea that the people couldn't speak, the idea of marvels, that supernatural wonder, uh, the, the, the precious steadfast love. It's that, that Hebrew word hesed that we've talked about before, that, that covenant love that God has for his people. Uh, the word inheritance, that his people are an inheritance. Um, who is God like you? It's in both songs. Uh, the, the idea that sin is trampled. The, the idea that Something is cast into the sea. In Exodus 15, it's Pharaoh and his chariots. In Micah 7, it's our sins. And there's all these these cross-references. And what is Micah trying to say through this? He's trying to tell us there's a new Exodus that is coming. And it will be like the first rescue from Egypt. But it's going to be greater in every way. It's not going to be Pharaoh and his chariots. It's going to be the eradication of our sin. It's going to be gone. And as a result of God's protection as Israel's shepherd, the pagan nations are going to be humbled. They're going to be caused to tremble down in verse 16 and 17 here in our text. In fact, they will lick the dust. Did you pick that up in verse 17? They will lick the dust like a serpent, like a snake. And that's another reference to Genesis 3.15, to the seed of the serpent. And again, I'm, I'm interpreting this as a future prophecy. This day, when a new exodus will come, it's not just you guys coming home from Babylon. It's not just you guys coming home from Nineveh and rebuilding your city. There's something bigger at work here. There's something at future stake. And it's, I think we'll see that it's fulfilled in the work of the Lord Jesus. In fact, just a little side note, we can't go there right now, but if you want to jot down, if you're taking notes, Luke chapter 9, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when when Jesus appears there with Moses and Elijah, uh, shortly before his crucifixion, uh, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, Luke records that what Moses and Elijah were talking about with Jesus in that moment on the Mount of Transfiguration was Jesus's departure and the word departure is literally the word exodus jesus is bringing about a new exodus through his work on the cross so what is our god like micah says he's light that pours into the darkness he's a builder who rebuilds and expands his city and he is a shepherd who cares and protects his people And now, are you ready for the climax? Let's look at the final stanza, verses 18 through 20. What is our God like? He pardons iniquity, and he passes over transgressions. Micah now gives us the answer. Although he's done it many times and in many ways through his prophecy, he now finally gives us a direct, final, overwhelming answer to the question, who is like our God? He's giving seven qualities of God here in rapid succession. You ready? Look at them. One, our God pardons iniquity. That 
word pardon is the idea of lifting up of sin from someone. It's like he takes it off of us and away from us. He passes over the transgression. That's the idea of overlooking a fault, not punishing us for something that we've done, that we deserve. He doesn't retain his anger forever. Praise be to God for that, right? I don't even think I need to explain that one. He delights in steadfast love. And it's not just that God practices love. It's not just that God shows us this love. He loves this love. He delights in this love. John Calvin wrote about this verse this way. He said, For the only prop or support that can raise us up to God when we desire to be reconciled to Him is this. He loves mercy. And that's that word here for hesed, steadfast love. Again, he says in verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. And the idea here is like a woman, the the language is like a woman whose instincts yearn for her baby. Like a mother has compassion for her child, the Lord has compassion on us. He tramples our sin underfoot. God is actively at work in destroying sin. He will rid this world of it one day. And then he casts our sin into the depths of the sea. Just like Pharaoh's army, right? Forever removed from our sight. The psalmist says as far as as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin from us. Now again, if some of this language seems familiar, it's because it's very similar to how God described himself again to Moses, this time on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Several of the same words, several of the same ideas that God used in describing himself to Moses, Micah uses to describe God to his people and to their enemies. Verse 20 here is also interesting. Micah says, this future work of the Lord is in keeping with his promise to Jacob and his promise to Abraham. And, and see, notice again here, the, the words that Micah uses are faithfulness and steadfast love. The same two words that God used with Moses back in Exodus 34. This is the heart of God. Uh, we, we have that book uh, available. If you, if, you have, if you haven't got one, if you've been coming for a while and you never have gotten a copy of Gentle and Lowly, uh, we have a bunch of free copies back at the, at the Information Center. Feel free to pick one up. It's a wonderful book about the heart of God. And it's describing God as gentle and lowly. And the, it's taken from those words in Exodus 34, faithfulness and steadfast love. Read more about that in that wonderful book. And this promise that he made to Jacob and Abraham is not unrelated to what Micah has already told us in chapter 5. Don't forget chapter 5, people. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, someone is born in a place called Bethlehem, right? Don't forget that. This is part of the prophecy. How do we know that what he's talking about here is going to be fulfilled by the one who's going to be born in Bethlehem that we know of as our Lord Jesus. How do we know that? In Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, 
verse 55, verse 73. There are two songs there. One is the song of Mary. One is the song of John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. In both of those songs, both of them connect the coming of the baby Jesus to the promise given to Abraham and to others in the Old Testament. So when God told Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. This is how. This is how. Through the coming of the baby in Bethlehem. It changed everything. I'll ask the praise team to come back to the front. We're going to sing a final song here in a moment. As they come, let me just wrap up this study with a few thoughts of application as we've been trying to do I want to give you three today, just simple ones, and I hope that uh, I hope they resonate in your heart and allow you to just result in praise and worship to, to your great God, who is like our God. One thought I think that's beautiful here in our text today is that we have an advocate, an advocate. You remember when Pastor Trey preached last week in Micah chapter 6, God brought his people into a courtroom to indict them. Remember? But here in Micah 7, the Lord takes Israel's case into his own hands. Did you, did you pick that up back in verse 9? Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. Now, understand what's so amazing about this. The one who is Israel's judge. We looked at that last week. The one who is Israel's judge is also their defender and their advocate. Isn't that amazing? It's almost like, it's almost like God has to stand in the prosecutor, in the well of the prosecutor's desk and condemn the people and then he runs over to the defense side, and he becomes our defense attorney. And he says, no, they must not be punished. They must not be found guilty because I am their advocate. And we know how we can be found not guilty because of the Lord Jesus. The Puritan John Bunyan wrote about this truth of being an advocate for us. He wrote, Christ gave for us the price of blood, but that is not all. Christ as a captain has conquered death and the grave for us, but that is not all. Christ as a priest intercedes for us in heaven, but that is not all. Sin is still in us and with us and mixes itself with whatever we do, whether what we do be religious or civil. For not only our prayers and our sermons, our hearings and preaching, but our houses, our shops, our trades, and our beds are all polluted with sin. Nor does the devil, our night and day adversary, forbear to tell our bad deeds to our Father, urging that we might forever be disinherited for this. But what should we do now if we had not an advocate? Yes, if we had not one who would plead. Yes, if we had not one that could prevail and that could faithfully execute that office for us. Why, we must die. But since we are rescued by him, let us, 
as to ourselves, lay our hand upon our mouth and be silent. What's he saying? Don't defend yourself. You have someone else who does that job for us. And it's a beautiful picture here in Micah chapter 7. Jesus is not only our judge, he's our defense attorney. He's our advocate. It's a beautiful picture. Another picture I think that's implicit here in our text is the fact that you and I are God's building. We talked about the fact that God is going to rebuild and expand the walls of his kingdom and how there's something bigger going on there than just the return to Jerusalem after the exile. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, Christians are called lively living stones used by God in the building of his spiritual temple. We are called by Christ to be that city set on a hill, shining the light that he has lit within us. And God's expansion plan for his kingdom calls you and me to take the good news about this shepherd king born in Bethlehem to the ends of the earth. That's our mission. You and I are part of the expanding, building of the kingdom and temple of God. What a privilege to be used in his service. And finally, I I can't help but read, especially verses 18 to 20, this great doxology at the end of the prophecy of Micah without just relaying this theme that has come through time and time again through this prophecy. And that is that Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. Twelve times in the Gospels, Jesus is recorded as being moved with compassion. Just like the Bible says, God is motivated by here. His message from the very beginning of his public ministry was that of forgiveness of sins. Just like Micah prophesies here. Jesus told us that he was the light of the world. Jesus told us that he is the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. Jesus told us that he is the way and the truth and the life. He told us that he is the great I am that we've seen so frequently in Micah's prophecy. And so, brothers and sisters, you and I can now very easily answer the taunt of the enemy when they say, where is your God? We can answer it because Jesus came and we can point to the cross and we can point to the tomb and say, he died for us, he lives for us, and he will never leave us or forsake us. We have known his faithfulness and we have known his steadfast love. And one day, brothers and sisters, because of Bethlehem, because of our great shepherd, we will know an end to sin itself and its destruction. It will be finally trampled. It will be thrown into the depths of the sea forever. And all of that is because of Jesus and Jesus alone. This is the gospel according to Micah from the town of Moresheth. 
in the southwestern hill country of Judah who lived and prophesied 2,700 years ago and whose word still speaks today to all who will listen. I hope you're listening. Who is a God like you? No one. No one. Only the Lord is our salvation.